Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're concluding Dr. Neufeld's series, The Mysteries of the Cross. Finishing our study, we'll discuss the topic of why Jesus died. Now turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, as we go back to the Bible. The cross of Jesus is the center of the faith of all true Christians, and it's also the center of how we live out our lives. There is no issue in life that any Christian will ever face that is unrelated to the cross. In the cross, we will not only find our forgiveness, but there we'll find our reason for living, the explanation for our own sufferings, the cure for all of our anxieties, and the reason and purpose for our lives. Our confidence in life comes in whether or not we have found confidence in the cross. In the cross, our guilt is forever removed, and we never go through life with a sense of remorse nor a nagging sense of what might have been. Indeed, all our hopes for the future are given shape and crafted by the sufferings of our Savior. Nothing is more crucial to life than the bleeding and dying of Him who is both Son of Man and Son of God. When we come together for worship, the two ordinances of the faith are about the cross. Baptism is the celebration of the beginning of our walk with Christ, and it's symbolized by our being buried with Christ in his death and rising with him in resurrection. It's about the cross. The Lord's table, the celebration of our ongoing life in the faith, has two significant symbols, the broken body of our Savior on the cross and his shed blood. Whether it's the living out of our everyday life or the practice of worship, the cross takes center stage. Galatians 6.14, Paul writes, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, the cross is also our beacon, our lighthouse. It declares to us that which is true and that which is false. If you understand the cross, you will avoid the greatest errors or false teachings in this world. Every single false teaching is related to a denigration of the cross. Don't believe that Jesus is fully human and divine? Well, that's because you don't understand the cross. Struggling with works righteousness and the sense that you might have to do better or more in order to be accepted by God. Well, you haven't plumbed the mystery of the cross. A feeling that your life doesn't matter. It's because you're ignoring the cross. Angry with God, are you? You need to be at the cross. Unsure of how to be confident when facing eternity? Look at the cross. The greatest problems that we will ever have is that many of us have too deficient or too small a view of God. We've lost this sense of the might and the glory and the wisdom and the power and the magnificence of God. There is, in fact, no greater perspective or no greater vista whereby we might view the majesty of God than can be seen through the prism of the cross. As Paul says in Romans 3.25, the cross was to showcase God's righteousness. View the cross rightly, and you're going to be staggered at the majesty of the one true God. You know, in this short week, I've sought to reinforce the truth that there is no greater thing that we can do than to plumb the mysteries of the cross. But in one short week, all that can be done is simply to whet our appetite, to want to learn more, to enter more deeply into the mystery, to peel back further levels of meaning. 
But there are two more items that I feel we must yet discuss regarding the cross, and both of these have to do with frequent misunderstandings about the cross. The first is what happened to Jesus right after he died, and the second, for whom did Jesus die? Now, both of these items tend to be somewhat controversial, but we do well if we limit what we know about the cross to that which is revealed in the Bible. And so let's start with what happened when Jesus died. John 19 verse 30 records, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But what then? We know that he rose from the dead three days later, but what happened during those three days? According to John 20 verse 17, when Mary encounters the risen Jesus, he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Well, does that mean that from the time of his death until right after he encounters Mary, he has not yet been in the Father's presence? And if not, where exactly was he? Those of you who come from a more traditional background will no doubt, as a congregation, have repeated the Apostles' Creed many times during worship. You remember that the part of the confession that deals with Jesus says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. You know, this confession has led a great many believers to wonder what Jesus would have been doing in hell. Since, as we have seen in our studies, the sufferings of Jesus ended on the cross. Why else would he say it is finished if he had not fully paid for our sins there on the cross? You know, it's simply a false teaching to say that he had to suffer in hell, for that would say that the cross was not sufficient to pay for our sins. But the cross is sufficient. Did Jesus really go to hell during those three days? Before I go any further, I must say that the Apostles' Creed is a bit of a difficult matter. There seems to be some evidence that the creed itself in some form is very early. One tradition states that after Pentecost, that the apostles themselves met and decided on a kind of a creed that these would be the things that they would make sure that they would teach wherever they went. And, and so the creed is a brief summary of everything that they taught. Now, but even if that's true, we do know that the creed as we now have it took shape from about A.D. 200 to about 750 with a number of versions and revisions. It seems that the line in the creed, descended into hell, was not included until quite late, appearing only after about A.D. 650. And besides, back to the Bible as a ministry teaches that the Bible alone is the sole determiner of our faith. And so, even though we do find the Apostles' Creed to be helpful, it is not the final matter of faith and practice. So, if Jesus descended into hell, well, we would have to find that in the Bible and not in the Creed. And so, what did happen during those three days? Did Jesus actually go to hell? Well, several passages are often used to support that idea, but I actually think none of them does. I mean, one comes from 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, and it's often used to support the idea. There we read, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went 
and proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, I know that's quite a mouthful. Let's go through the options of how we might interpret that passage. We know that Jesus did not suffer in hell, so let's do away with that possible interpretation. A second possible interpretation says that Jesus went into hell in order to offer those who were suffering there a second chance. But if that were true, that would contradict the weight of Bible evidence. For instance, we might read Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. That's the Bible ordering of matters. In Luke 16, 19-31, in Jesus' account of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man went immediately to hell. And that's why 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2 says, Of those who are living, behold, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation. That's why as believers, we don't pray for the dead. We pray for the living. But the dead will have no change of status. Death is the final curtain that we pass through. All changes in our eternal direction end at death. With death, our eternity is sealed. So Jesus did not suffer in hell, nor did he offer the dead a second chance. But that opens up another possible interpretation. The word for preached in 1 Peter 3 is not euangeliizomai, but rather it's the word kirudzo. Jesus didn't evangelize, say some, rather he proclaimed. Perhaps he descended into hell simply to proclaim to the suffering spirits that he had won the victory. But if that were true, why? And how does that fit the context of 1 Peter chapter 3? Since 1 Peter chapter 3 is about announcing not Christ's triumph over the spirits, but encouraging believers to bear faithfully under suffering. I think the best interpretation of 1 Peter 3 is that Jesus preached the gospel through the agency of Noah in former days, and that those who would not listen are now the spirits in prison. In other words, the text says nothing about Jesus going to hell at all. I think it's much easier to believe that Jesus went directly from the cross into heaven with shouts of triumph. James wrote to say, Today's message of born again is exactly the reason Back to the Bible Canada has become my go-to resource for biblical teaching. The bold truth Dr. Newfeld presented today was entirely refreshing. I appreciate the truth-based teaching so much that I'll be increasing my monthly donation to Back to the Bible Canada. It really has become such a blessing to me and to my spiritual growth. Keep up the good work, Dr. Newfeld. Please never let the opinions of man influence your teaching about God. Thanks, James. Your words of encouragement mean so much. And we love to hear how this or any of our ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are impacting your journey with Jesus. And if you're considering offering a gift or becoming a monthly partner like James, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca or send us a note at info at backtothebible.ca. We've been asking the question of what Jesus did after he died on the cross. I find no biblical evidence that Jesus ever descended into hell. Where did Jesus go after he died? The answer, I think, is rather straightforward. 
His body was consigned to a tomb, and his spirit ascended into heaven. But why then does he appear to Mary and tell her not to cling to him because he has not yet ascended to his father? Well, the answer should be obvious. After three days, Jesus' spirit returned to his body, and he was bodily raised. It was his raised body that had not yet ascended into heaven. And so what Jesus experienced after death is a first fruit of what follows. We who believe in Christ, like Christ, upon dying, will immediately go to heaven. And just like Christ, we await the resurrection of our body. No believer in Christ goes to hell. And so what we can say about the cross is it did for Jesus in one sense exactly what it does for us. It opened the door to instant paradise, to an instant shout of triumph as we enter into the gates of glory. Now, I've said that there are two outstanding and controversial questions that I wanted to deal with when discussing the cross. The second question, perhaps far more controversial than the first, is the question of who Jesus died for. Now, there may be some that might be surprised by the question. We thought we already knew the entire answer, so in the brief time I have, let me highlight the difference and provide in my perspective what might be a way forward to this important question. In John 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or many of us are quite aware of 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That, at least at the outset, seems to be an open and shut case. Jesus died for everyone. And some who are hearing this for the first time might be surprised that there is some controversy regarding this issue. After all, when we share the gospel with our non-Christian friends, we might have used the line, Christ suffered and died for you. See, that seems obvious. But there are those who argue just as strongly that Christ died only for the elect. Let's listen to some of the Bible texts that speak about Christ dying specifically for his own. John 10, verse 10, has Jesus saying, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In that passage, it's quite clear that those in Jesus' sheepfold is not a description of the whole world. Rather, it is a description of the elect. For we listen to Jesus in John 10, 27 say, My sheep hear my voice, and they will never listen to the voice of a stranger. And so it turns out in the passage in question, the sheep that Jesus has died for are those who hear him and who will never stray from his fold. Other passages seem to say the same thing. In Acts 20, verse 28, Paul speaks of the church of God, which is obtained with the blood of his son. In other words, the nature and uniqueness of the church is that it, unlike everyone else, has been purchased with the blood of Christ. We could look at many other passages like that. In fact, the New Testament is full of them. But notice one more. In Romans 14, Paul presents an extended argument for Christian freedom and not putting a stumbling block in the way of a Christian brother. And then in verse 15, he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, clearly in that text, the one for whom Christ died is the very same one as the one who is saved. So the saved are the ones for whom Christ died. For a great many people, the entire dispute comes down to two essential factors. First, if Christ died for our sins, then they must be paid for. 
As an example, let's consider a man, let's call him Harry, who has a large debt, let's say, on his house. If his friend Frank goes to the bank and pays Harry's debt, then the debt is paid for, no matter how Harry responds. And so say those on one side of the debate, we can't say that Christ died for someone's sins and then argue that they're not paid for. Either they are or they're not, and if they are, nothing can be added to it. And the second factor often surrounds the question of the efficacy of Christ's death. Is Christ's death on the cross 100% effective or not? But on the other side, there will be those who will argue from 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, which clearly says that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, and shouldn't that settle the debate? Well, who's right? Well, for my part, I can't possibly think that I can settle a debate that is hundreds of years old in one small broadcast, but I might point out something that people on both sides of the debate will acknowledge as obvious. All of us know that if I were to say to a Christian, Christ died for you, and if I were to say the same words to a non-Christian, Christ died for you, I would really be saying two very different things. Let me explain. When I tell a Christian Christ died for you, I want to reassure him or her that their sins really are removed. If they feel anxiety that they might not be accepted by God after all, or wonder, am I really going to heaven? And then can I really have assurance of my salvation? I would respond by saying, wait a minute, sister, stop with the self-condemnation. Christ died for you. And if Christ died for you, then there are no sins you have committed that will keep you from God's loving embrace. You are accepted in the beloved. You are welcome in the holy of holies. You can call God Abba, Father. Don't let the devil whisper condemnation for your sins have been atoned for. Christ died for you. Now, when I tell a non-Christian Christ died for you, I don't mean any of that. I mean Christ died so that a free offer could be made to you. Were it not for the death of Jesus on a cruel cross, no offer could be made to you at all. But as it is, Christ has satisfied the righteous demands of the Father. And if you will but respond and repent of your sins and receive his free gift of grace, you can have the forgiveness of your sins. So do you see what I've done? I've described that which we all intuitively know. Whatever we mean by the words, Christ died for you, we all know that those words, when applied to either the saved or to the unsaved, actually mean two very different things. So here's what we know for certain from the cross. Not all will be saved. The death of Jesus makes a free offer to all. A doorway has been opened. An invitation has been given. Whosoever will may come. It's in that sense and in that sense only that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. But for us who are saved, the words Christ died for us means that our sins are paid for. The great cost of sin has been paid in the currency of the blood of our precious Savior. God's justice has been satisfied in the cross, and I bear my sins no more. And so it is more than correct to call the church of the living Savior the body of those for whom Christ has died. For his death is applied to us not in terms of an invitation, but in terms of a debt that has been truly paid. 
Every single Christian knows that, that Christ has died for us. It is the most precious thing that we could ever say, the most glorious truth upon which our minds can meditate. God is not angry with me. His anger is satisfied in the cross. The devil can't have me in any sense. Christ defeated him on the cross. Indeed, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The cross has seen to that. And so let me end with a passage of scripture I've already alluded to comes from Galatians 6, verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, in this passage, Paul is saying that when he looks at his own life, he sees nothing as praiseworthy that would commend him before God. Indeed, he goes beyond even that thought. Everything that can be offered up in this world, which might include fame and the adulation of others, is for him but rubbish. After all, Paul was a rising star in Judaism and thought that to give all that up for the sake of the cross was nothing at all. See, we do the same. If it's money or fame or acceptance from friends and family to be spoken of well in this world or whatever pleasure or comfort the world has to offer— Far be it from me to boast or to relish in the thought of that. The only thing I relish in, the only thing that captivates my imagination and inspires and propels me forward is but one thing, the cross on which my Savior has died. Indeed, the whole world with its riches have been crucified to me and I to it. To him be the glory. Our Heavenly Father, I want to pray very specifically for those who are hearing me at this moment who have not yet committed their hearts to Christ as Savior and Lord. May they hear this word. Were it not for the death of Jesus, no such offer would ever have been made to me. I would have been dead to the things of God forever. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone hearing me that they might respond and say, God, in loving kindness, sent his only Son so that I might come to him. And so, Lord, even now, take my life. I confess my sins. I surrender my life into your loving hands. I would be your child. I would trust in your cross till the day that I die and be with you. Amen. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for this wonderful message of the mysteries of the cross. Remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward and begin the morning with devotions from InDoubt ministry leader Isaac Dagno. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca.
Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life.